we praise you again that you have spoken to us through your word. Your word is powerful. Your word is living. It divides to, it pierces the division of joint and marrow and soul and spirit. And we ask you, Lord, to do that work in us through your word this morning. We ask that the Holy Spirit would help us see ourselves as we truly are and see you as you truly are and see Christ as he truly is. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I don't have a clicker here, so I might just get you, Jacob, to flip the next slide for us. Thank you. Maybe you've seen this show. Put up a hand if you've watched this one. This was on SBS recently. Just a couple. Just a couple. Christians like us. All right. So to give you a bit of a, uh, a summary, because most of you haven't watched this show, it's kind of like... Ah, oh, thanks, Ross. It's kind of like the Christian version of Big Brother, which is an objectively terrible idea. Uh, Big Brother was a a plague on reality TV and on TV generally. I'm sorry, Ross. (laughs) Right, so what happened was was just uh, they got 10 Christians, put them in a house together for a week, and it was more than just Big Brother. It wasn't seedy and disgusting like that all was. Uh, It was actually a chance for these 10 Christians to discuss some of the big issues around Christianity and the church today. Now, uh, one of the things that was probably unhelpful about the program was... In my estimation, probably only about half the people on it were actually Christian. (laughs) If you've watched it, you'll know what I mean. Uh, But one of the things that is very helpful, I think, about this program, and why I would advise you to watch it to understand, is that it actually gives a, a very good summary of the way in which the world views Christianity and views the church today. Because, uh, you may have noticed, times have changed, (laughs) the tide has turned. Uh, In fact, uh, the world's attitude to the church and to Christianity has changed dramatically just even in the last few years. Have you noticed that? So if you want to go back, it feels like eons ago, you could say that there was a time when the church and Christianity was generally liked, generally respected. Most people went to church most Sundays, let alone at Christmas and, and Easter. Uh, The church was pretty packed. There are a lot of people who would have said that they were Christians. So that was a time, really a long time ago. Uh, About 30 years ago, you get this new philosophical movement called postmodernism, in which uh, a handy summary of that is, you have your truth and I have my truth. And don't tell me that my truth is wrong and I won't tell you that your truth is, is wrong and we can all get along. Right? That's postmodernism. It's this idea that all truths, all meanings, all possible ideas are equally valid. And so we tolerate one another even if we don't agree. And so for a, probably the last few decades, Christianity has been tolerated. Rather than liked or respected, it's been tolerated in the public sphere. So as long as you don't tell me I'm wrong, then we can be okay. But in the last few years, the tide has turned again, and Christianity is no longer merely liked or respected, nor is it merely tolerated. It's actually now sort of hated. Have you noticed that? It's kind of, people are offended a lot by a lot of things surrounding Christianity and the church. One of the helpful things about this program, Christians Like Us, is it really shows that. Uh, Let me just give a, a little bit of a a summary, a shopping list, if you want, of the things that were discussed on this program. The church's view on homosexuality. The church's view on abortion. The church's view on gender. Stories of historical cases 
of sexual abuse in the church. Now, are these offensive things? These are offensive things. These are offensive things. Uh, Perhaps even people have the right to be offended. Perhaps you have the right to be offended. Because uh, although the church isn't going and the Bible isn't going to change its words about homosexuality or abortion, nonetheless, some Christians and some churches have treated homosexuals and treated women in dire circumstances in ways that leave a lot to be desired. And it absolutely grieves me, as it ought to grieve you if you're a churchgoer, that there have been people in, in my position pastors, leaders in the church that have abused people. Horrific. Horrifically, disgustingly offensive. These things are offensive. Perhaps you have the right to be offended. But the thing that I find really curious about this program, Christians like us, is it didn't, or it barely, discuss the thing that is the most offensive about Christianity. It didn't really get to the core of the issue, which is ironic. I would have expected that the SBS would have just gone for the jugular on this, but they didn't. They didn't pay barely any attention to the thing that is the most offensive about Christianity. And today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the thing that's the most offensive about Christianity. In fact, it has a lot to do with Easter. It has a lot to do with the cross. And we can see it in the passage that Ezra just read for us. If you have a Bible, could you please open up to it? Romans chapter 5. Uh, If not, look on with someone nearby or just grab your phone and Google Romans and then the number five, click on the first thing and then you'll see it. So Romans five. Here's what we're going to see that's offensive. It's the, the most offensive thing about Christianity. It actually has these two strands to it that weave through this passage and here they are. We're not as good as we think we are. That's the first thing. We're not as good as we think we are. And then secondly, There's only one way to fix that. There's only one way to fix that. And maybe to you, as you hear uh, those two ideas, you're thinking, well, that doesn't really seem that offensive, perhaps compared to the other issues surrounding the church and Christianity. Or perhaps you've been at church for a long time and you've heard these things over and over and they just kind of wash over you and you're a bit numb to them. But actually, these things are supremely offensive. They are offensive to our view of ourselves. They are offensive, perhaps, to our view of God. They're shocking. They're upsetting. The more that we probe into them, the more shocked and upset we may find ourselves. And so my job isn't done this morning unless someone actually leaves in anger, fuming. (laughs) Not really, not really. But it does stand to reason. Why would we talk about these things this morning when it's Good Friday, right? It's Good Friday. Talk about the things that make Christianity good, not the things that make it offensive and shocking and upsetting. Well, sure. But uh, you ever heard, you know, do you want the good news first or the bad news first? There's two kinds of people, those who want the good news first, those who want the bad news first. Hand up if you're the sort that likes the good news first. Like you like something sweet in your mouth before you have to taste something sour. Yep, a couple. Who likes the bad news first? And see, I think that makes more sense. (laughs) Get it out of the way. (laughs) Now, sometimes, in fact, the good news doesn't make sense unless you first have the bad news. And so just imagine with me for a moment that you get a call and the call sounds something like this. Hello. This is Gosford Police. Uh, Just to let you know, everything's totally fine. You have nothing to worry about. (laughs) And you say, well, thanks for the update. You know, I guess it's good. Great. Now, compare it with this. Hello, this is Gosford Police. Just to let you know, your car's been stolen. Some teenagers have taken it for a joyride. Uh, They've taken it up to Wyong and back. But hey, we've caught them. It's okay. 
In fact, there's no damage to your car. We have it here at the station. So just to let you know, everything's fine. You have nothing to worry about. Do you see the difference? Sometimes the good news doesn't, in fact, make sense until you have the bad news. And that's the case here with the thing that is most offensive about Christianity. So our first point. We're not as good as we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. Take a look at chapter 5, Romans 5. Look for verse number 6 or sentence number 6. It says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you notice how we as humans are described there? In fact, if you were to try and come up with a word to describe humanity as a whole, just think to yourself, what would you use? Maybe you'd use a word like creative. Humans have done incredible things. Maybe you'd use a word like industrious, hardworking, virtuous, full of potential. Maybe you'd even use a word like kind or like good. And that's true that some people, some of the time, are some of those things. But take a look at the way that all humanity is described here. We are weak and we are ungodly. Now, is that offensive? Absolutely, that's offensive to our sense of self. Take a look at the logic of the next verse. It goes further. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And this is true, isn't it? If you think of someone that you respect or someone that you look up to or someone that you love and they were in peril and the only way to save them would be to give your life, you may consider giving your life for that person. But look at the next verse. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were good people, not while we were virtuous or kind, while we were sinners. And we'll unpack the full meaning of that word a little bit later. But do you see the claims that are made of humanity here? It goes on. Verse 9. We've been justified by, by his blood. Much sure shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. The claim here is we are deserving of the wrath or the judgment of God. And in verse 10, it talks about us being his enemies. Again, this is offensive. This really paints a picture. If you want to use some uh, technical words around this, this is a low anthropology, right? This is a low view of man. Actually, very interestingly, um, Scripture, the Bible, has both a high anthropology and a low anthropology. There's a high view of man and a low view of man because we're all made in the image of God. That's what we find right at the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis 1.26. We're all made as a reflection of God. We're like a mirror to him. So there's a high anthropology. We have innate dignity. We are imbued with worth because we are made in the image of our creator. And at the same time, there's a low anthropology because as it were, we've all cracked the mirror. We've all treated God as an enemy. We've all sinned. And so there's simultaneously this high view of, of people and a low view of people. And interestingly, if you're not a Christian, if you don't hold to the scriptures, I wonder how you could reconcile both of those things. Because it seems to me that you either need to have a high anthropology and assume that everyone's good and they're not really make sense of why people are evil, or have a low anthropology and assume that everyone's bad and not really have any way to make sense of why people have worth. Do you see? 
The thing we're focusing on here, however, is the low view of man, the low view of humans, that we are weak, ungodly, sinful, enemies of God, deserving of his wrath. And the scriptures, in fact, are very realistic about this. If you want to think about the the overall story of scripture, the overall narrative of of, uh, people that God used to bring about his purposes, then consider this. Consider some of the superheroes, some of the people that we might think, you know, they're really the ones to look up to in Christian history. Take someone like Noah, right? You've heard of Noah? He built the ark because God commanded him to. He spent like 100 years on this boat, right? Uh, 100 years building the boat, rather, because the Lord had told him to. A man of great faith who no sooner had the boat landed than he'd gotten drunk off a bunch of wine and passed out naked in his tent for his son to find. (laughs) You might not have known that about Noah. Or what about Abraham? Again, a man of great faith, who the Lord said, go from your father's homeland. Go to the place that I'll show you. You don't know where that is yet, but go. And so he followed. And he trusted God when God said, I'm going to give you a son, even though your wife is old and barren. And he held on to that promise for 24 long years before the son was born. Wow, what a hero of the faith. Who at the same time when he came into Egypt didn't trust God enough to protect him. And so he said to Pharaoh, well, this beautiful woman here, she's actually my sister, not my wife. And so please don't kill me and take her for yourself. (laughs) Can you imagine taking your wedding ring off and putting it in your pocket and saying, oh, the reason we have the last name is that we are related, (laughs) right? That's Abraham. Not really a hero. Well, in some ways a hero, but in many ways not. What about someone like David, King David, the leader of Israel? You know where I'm going. A man after God's own heart, also an adulterer and also a murderer. Because when he saw a woman bathing that he liked the look of, he took her, got her pregnant, and then killed the man who was her husband so that no one would find out. See, the scriptures are very realistic about the human condition. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would number ourselves among the Noahs and the Abrahams and the Davids and perhaps even worse. This is an offensive truth, but it is the truth nonetheless. And I just wonder, imagine if instead of reading about Abraham's life here or Noah's life here or David's life here, in fact, we're reading about your life or reading about my life here on these pages. Here's the chapter of Dan's life with the good and the bad, with the stuff that he liked people seeing and the stuff that he really didn't want people to see. In fact, instead of reading, imagine that we put this up on the screen as a movie. Imagine it was a movie summary of your life with the good moments, but the shameful moments, the things that you said to people that you were proud of saying, the things that you regret saying, the things that you wish nobody heard. The things that you know nobody saw, but we're now seeing them. Yeah, I'd be the first to leave the building (laughs) if that were me up on that screen. And imagine we could get like an audio commentary over the top as well that had your thoughts running through all of these scenes. Gosh, it'd be awful, wouldn't it? See, if we're all honest, we know that we're not good at heart. We can only agree with what the scriptures say. But it's worth noting that when... The scriptures here talk about sin, talk about ungodliness, that it's not just talking about doing bad things. It's not just talking about making mistakes that we might regret. It's not just bad things, but a bad state of relationship. 
not just bad things, a bad state of relationship with God. Uh, Like I said, we're made as a mirror, the image of God, made to reflect him. But we've all cracked the mirror, as it were, not just by doing bad things, but by saying to God effectively, I don't want to reflect you. I want to make my own image. I want to be who I am in my view and not have to follow your rules or your way. Which is ironic because God is the creator. We're only here because of him. He's the king. He's made all of the universe to work in a certain way, to play with a certain music as it were. And life works best, in fact, when we walk in step with that music. But all of us have decided to march to our own beat. And in so doing, we've cracked the mirror. We no longer reflect the image of God. Or we do only dimly, only in shards. In so doing, we've rebelled against the king. We have defamed the creator. And one day, we will all need to stand before this God and give an account for how we've treated him. That's the core of sin. That's the core of what this is. In fact, there's another verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. I'm just going to read this out for you. You can go to it in your, in your Bible if you want. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 4, which just puts this in a very succinct way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Are these offensive words? Absolutely. But they're true words, if we're honest with ourselves. Like the rest of mankind, we have been dead in our trespasses, in our sins against God, in which we once walked perhaps in which we're now walking. What were we following when we were in the way of sin? We were following the course of this world. We were choosing to go the world's way rather than God's way. We were following the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, who's really the one behind the world's ways. We were following the passions of our flesh, that is, our own desires, the desires of our own heart and our own mind rather than God's desires for us. And that has made us by nature children of God's wrath. That is deserving of God's wrath. Because on that day when each of us will stand before the Lord and needs to give an account for how we live, and as it were, he plays back the movie, right? What will we be able to say? We've spent a lifetime saying to God, get out of my life. And on that day, He will give us exactly what we've been asking for. We will be shut out from the presence of his blessing forever. But that, friends, is what we would describe as hell. Being shut out from the presence of the blessing of the creator, of everything good, is being shut out from everything good forever. This is the situation in which we find ourselves. It is an offensive truth. It's a truth nonetheless. And we can't do anything about it. Which leads us then to our second offensive point. You're thinking, gosh, how can this get worse? There's only one way to fix that. There's only one way to fix that. Now, very interestingly, 
at the end of um, the, the Christians Like Us show, there was one of those sort of big emotional endings. You know what I'm talking about? If you've ever watched Master Chef or Big Brother or any of these things, they always have this big emotional ending where there's like an orchestral overture and then there's this flyover shot of the place where the show's happened, in this case, the house in which they all lived. And then there's all of these hugs and, oh, I'll miss you and, oh, I love you and all of that stuff. That's what happens at the end of the show. And there's just these four little scenes that happen, these little vignettes that I think give a really interesting window into perhaps what the show's producers wanted you to think. Like, they tip their hand just a little bit too much. The first one is there's a woman, Tiffany, who is an Anglican priest, and um, she is talking with a woman, Hannah, who is a Mormon. And really interestingly, there'd been a lot of discussion in the house about whether uh, this woman, Hannah, uh, a Mormon, was indeed a Christian. And Tiffany had, had talked with her and had sort of been thinking, well, you know, um, you actually hold to some things that are very, very different to historic Christian belief. And that's true. Um, while Christians believe that the Bible is the sole authority for faith and for salvation and for life, um, other groups like Mormons, for example, hold that it's the Bible and the Book of Mormon. So it's a shared authority. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are the same. It's, it's the Bible and uh, the Watchtower publications. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, some are the same. It's the Bible and it's uh, the writings of Ellen White Catholics. It's the Bible and church leaders in their tradition. You see, it's always the Bible plus. And what distinguishes historic Christianity from some of these different sects and groups is just the view of the Bible, that's all, which leads to their view of Jesus and how we're saved. So in the house, Tiffany and others had this conversation with, with Hannah. And uh, in the end, here in this final scene, took Hannah and said, you know what, Hannah, I'm so sorry that I ever said you weren't a Christian. I'm so sorry. Actually, I can see that you do love God. Give me a hug. I can see that you are a Christian. That's the first little scene that happened. I wonder what you think about that. It's very emotional. It's nice. The second scene that happened. There's a man, Steve, who just had a rough trot in life. And I won't go into the whole story. If you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. He had a really rough trot. And he decides at the end, and he speaks emotionally to the camera, he says, my version of Christianity is just being close to my family and close to my friends with the years that I have left. There's a second scene. A third scene. There's a young Catholic man who turns to the camera and full of passion and gusto, he says, I'm going to be a Catholic. And if they're the rules that I want to live by, then who can judge me? And then there's a final little bit, like sort of a, a narrator's overtone as everything fades to black that says that the church, the future of the church looks positive if Christians stop being so literal about the Bible and accept that there are multiple ways to God. Now, really interesting that that was the conclusion of the show. I wonder what you think about those scenes. I wonder if you agree. Perhaps you do. But the view of Scripture, in fact, that there's only one way to fix our most fundamental problem, the problem of sin, the problem of God's coming judgment, the problem of a broken relationship with him, a bad state of relationship with him, and it is not through just accepting that everybody's right. It is not through just saying, well, I can see that you love God and that must mean that everything's okay. It's not through just being close to our family and friends and trying to be a good person to those that we love. It's not through being a good dad or a good mum. That is not the way to fix this problem. 
It is not through saying, well, I'm going to live by a set of rules and no one can judge me. (laughs) It's not rules that save us. You see, there is only one way to fix this problem. Take a look at the passage with me, because as I said, there are two strands. One is about our sinfulness. There's a second strand in here, one that's repeated over and over and over. Take a look at verse 6. Again, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died. This is repeated again. Come down to verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. Verse 10. If while we were enemies, uh, uh, sorry, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Here's the solution put forward by the Bible. It is the death of Jesus Christ. And that's very offensive. Again, let's unpack this. There's just two ways that this is offensive. Firstly, that Christ, the Son of God, died. Christ, the Son of God, died, and he died for us. Just consider the implications of that, would you? If you, if you have heard this over and over again, right? Perhaps you've been sitting in church for 30 years. Just like, let that go to the side for a moment. Imagine hearing this for the first time. Or maybe this is the first time hearing this for you. Christ the Son of God, died. God died. He died for us. That's a scandal. That is highly offensive to our view of God, perhaps. Put it this way, and this is, this is a very imperfect illustration, all right? It won't capture everything, but it just captures something. Imagine if someone came into your home and stole a bunch of your most valuable possessions last night. Okay, So maybe they took your TV, they took your computer and all of your computer files, Uh, they took your photo albums. Like, what are they going to do with your photo albums? (laughs) It's just out of spite. They took your photo albums. Maybe if you've got your wedding ring off and next to your bed, you know, they took your wedding ring or they took other jewellery that means something to you. They took your most valuable stuff. And then this morning they got caught. What would you want to do to them? Throw the book at them, right? Press all the charges and get all my stuff back. What you definitely wouldn't do is do something like this. Hey, I'm going to forgive you for taking all my stuff. And in fact, I'm going to give you the deed to my house. You can have it all. That would be insane. And yet, Christ died for us. While we still had God's stuff in our hands, caught red-handed, looting the place, using creation and the lives he's given us all for our own selfish purposes rather than his. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. God gave over his most precious son, it's worth more than any house, to die for us. Deeply offensive, deeply shocking Deeply upsetting, particularly when you consider the way in which Christ suffered in his death. He suffered physically. Nails through the hands and through the ankles, slowly suffocating on a splintered wooden cross. He suffered emotionally. I was just reading last night from Matthew 26, where he's in the garden the night before his crucifixion. He's sweating great drops of blood. And he says to his friends, his disciples, 
I am in deep anguish almost to the point of death. Have you ever been there before? Jesus has been there at a level that far surpasses anything we've experienced. He suffered emotionally. He suffered relationally. Hanging on the cross, Jesus cries out some words. Do you remember what he cries? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he say those words? Because in that moment, a relationship is broken. A relationship, in fact, that had been together and shared in unity for all eternity. The relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There in that moment, rather than the Father loving and blessing the Son, you have the Father pouring out wrath and judgment on the Son. He suffers relationally. And he suffers existentially. A big word just meaning to the very core of him. Because on the cross, Jesus doesn't die for his own guilt. He was innocent. He always did what his father wanted him to do. He lived the life we ought to have lived. But he took upon himself our sin. This is what it means when it says that Christ died for us. He took our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our enmity against God on himself and was punished and suffered and died as if he were guilty. He was in our place, a substitute. And so Christ suffered existentially, infinitely, with the infinite weight of all of our sin, past, present, and future, hanging on the cross. This is deeply upsetting and deeply shocking. And we can go further because there's a second reason that this is offensive. It's not just that Christ died for us, it's that he had to die for us. He had to. Because look at what comes from Jesus' death in our place. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. What does that mean? It's a legal term. Justified. Justification. In a court of law, you can be justified and so proven innocent, but only if you are truly innocent. You're justified by the truth. If Christ has taken our sin on the cross and we turn to him and trust that he has done that for us, then we are declared innocent of all our sin and rebellion against God. We are justified only through Jesus' death. Secondly, we've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If we're innocent, what does that mean? It means on judgment day when we stand before this God, Will he be able to justly pour judgment out on us? No, or maybe that's not the best way to put it. He won't pour out judgment on us and he will choose not to because he's poured it out on his son instead. Christ Jesus took it for us. One final truth, verse 10. For if we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The word reconciled there means brought back together. We are brought back into relationship with God that begins now and lasts for eternity in the blessing of his presence forever. The kind of relationship which he originally designed us for, we can enjoy to, uh, again in newness. So you see three things here. Justification, all of our sin forgiven. Saved from the wrath of God. Spared, by his judgment, or spared from his judgment because Christ has paid the price for us. 
and reconciled back into relationship with God. The only way that these things can happen is through the death of Jesus Christ and trusting in him. Can't happen by just being a good person. Can't happen just by loving our families. Can't happen by trusting anything other than what Jesus has done at the cross. This is an existential problem to fix at the very core of humanity and only God can fix it. So do you see, he had to die. And again, that is deeply upsetting that Christ had to die for us and it's also deeply offensive in our world today because it means that some people are wrong. It means that at a time I was wrong and so were you. It means perhaps that right now you're wrong. It means that some people are going thinking that everything is okay but they're deluded and they need Jesus and perhaps that's you. So This is all very offensive stuff. But as I said, the bad news leads to the good news. And here's the good news. In fact, I'll just read it with emphasis. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us. What does God show? God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What was God's motivation in sending his son? What was God's motivation for dealing with our highly offensive sin in the most highly offensive way? Love. It was his love. Love for his glory, but love for us is what this passage says. And this is as good a summary of Christianity as you can get. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't wait for us to turn our life around. He doesn't wait for us to get it all together and become good people. He died for us while we were still shaking our fists at him, while we were still red-handed with all of our stuff in his hands. It's a picture of the God who wants to save us, who longs to deliver us from the coming judgment, who yearns to share relationship with us and has done everything necessary for that to happen. It's just like the old, very well-known verse says from John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. His words are true. And perhaps with the, the view of the offence of the cross and the offence of Christianity in mind, those words perhaps breathe new life for you um, because it is only the love of God that could possibly change sinners like me and like you and possibly save sinners like me and like you. Which leaves us then with two responses to all of this. Firstly, we need to be offended. And we should be. But I'd say this, uh, make sure that you're offended by the core things of Christianity. There are lots of things we could be upset about. Um, but make sure you're upset about the things that Christianity is really about, and that is the cross. That is this, this view of man and this view of God that we've just talked about. Um, and so, of course, as we keep the cross in view today, um, yes, feel offended, upset, shocked, perplexed, confused, grieved, confronted by the reality of our sin and the reality of what God has done through Christ. Yes, do feel that and do enter into that experience. But a second thing, rejoice. Take a look at verse 11. This is the way the passage ends and therefore is the most important point here. More than that, we also rejoice in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you are in Christ, if you have faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin by his death on the cross, you can rejoice today. It's called Good Friday. (laughs) It's the only day on the whole calendar that has the word good in front of it. We should feel offended, but we should also rejoice at what God has done for us in Jesus. Amen Amen to that, absolutely. And so if you're someone who's not in Christ or you're still working all of this out, um, it would just be great if you spent some time today uh, reading through this passage again, perhaps reading through even the Gospel of John. Take you a couple of hours. Go through and, and just see what it is that Jesus has really done. Have a chat. If you want to have a chat with me, I can stick around for a while. There's others here who would love to chat with you. Chat with the person who brought you. This is a great day to work this stuff out, or at least to take another step. And if you're someone who is in Christ, today is a day to be upset over our sin and be humbled and to rejoice in what Christ has done. And so let's do that now in prayer together. Oh, dear Lord. We know that we have sinned against you, but we praise you for Jesus, our friend, our Lord, our Saviour. I'll give us a clearer vision of the cross now as we continue to reflect on your word through communion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.